have your attention, please. You're listening to Tales from the Tannoy with Eleanor Hamilton. If you've ever heard a voice on the radio or on your sat-nav or announcing the train, the chances are that you've shouted at that voice more than once. But it's likely that inside the object you're shouting at is the recorded voice of a real live person. Or perhaps they're not alive anymore. My voice announces the trains on the London Underground. This is Covent Garden. And I'm heard alongside my husband, Phil Sayer. Mind the gap. He actually died in 2016, but he's still working with me because recordings don't die. So voices follow us around, in and outside the home, but we know so little about them. They just tell us stuff, but never anything about themselves. In Tales from the Tannoy, all those anonymous voices get to tell their stories. Some are heartbreaking, others are hilarious, and some are both. You've almost certainly heard this week's guest before because her voice has been heard announcing in between TV programmes for years, but she reckons her finest hour was when she got to be the voice of London 2012. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the athletes of the 30th Olympiad. Trish Bertram, you have got the most phenomenal voice, so it's no wonder you use it for a living. But how did you go from being a convent girl to not just announcing royalty, but having your voice beamed live across the world at the Olympics? Oh, goodness me. Um, I, I blagged my way in in 1982, and I really did blag my way in, because I, I had no training and no acting background, nothing. Uh, just an awful lot of cheek. <laughs> um, and I left a couple of times to go off on adventures. I went off to uh, Super Channel in 1987. I've thinking, never heard of that. Never heard of it. Okay, no. it was the first big satellite television launch for, that the UK did. It was called Television for Europe. Oh, right. And we were launched by Mrs. Thatcher, so it was all part of God. her years. I know, you see how old I am. <laughs> um, you know, and it was mainly to give the best of British television for Europe via satellite. So this was fantastically brand new. And we're talking, mm. you know, around sort of Sky was just a baby fledgling thing then. It wasn't a, a Murdoch eyes thing. Mm. Um and we launched this thing in a blaze of glory. And guess what? Europe weren't interested. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> you see how things never change. <laughs> oh, you know, we had Attenborough and we had uh, oh, fabulous no. dramas of the day, Bouquet of Barbed Wire, I remember. And we had, you know, we had ITN doing our news with John Suchet, a very young John Suchet. Wow. And we, had, we, had, we had a schedule comprising the best of the BBC and the best of ITV. And, mm. you know, it was... It all kind of and fell flat. Met with a Gallic shrug. Yeah, exactly. And uh, also, they hadn't sorted out the equity agreement at the time. So, if one actor, if one actor in a program said, "I don't want my episode to be shown," you know, it could have been just somebody with four lines. Mm. We had to pull it. So we had Blake Seven, and we were showing Blake Seven, but we could never show the final episode. No way. <laughs> Because there was an actor in it who, you know, not a big part, who said, no, I'm not giving my agreement to this. You're not paying me nearly enough to show this to Europe. And I, I refuse. So we literally had it on a loop, running around, running around. So we never showed the final episode. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a complete disaster. Yeah. Um, after two years of it, and it was great fun. It was a fantastic place to work. It was full of BBC and ITV people who wanted to take a punt on something new. Mm. Um and uh, then in 1990, I thought, oh, I fancy a new one. This was British Satellite Broadcasting was launching, a thing with uh, Squareal yeah. on the roof. Yes. And this looked a bit more like it might have a chance. Um, and so I, I said, oh, I'm off again now. I've been asked to go and be senior announcer there because I've been around for a while. And off I went and did that. That went bang within 11 months. Oh, God. <laughs> Everyone got made redundant. And London weekend, my boss was so brilliant. She rang up and she went, I'm just watching the news here about BSB. 
do you need your job back? Oh, how wonderful. <laughs> so, so the short answer is I was there on and off from 87 to about 2000. And was it one or two when it all turned into ITV? My memory is so bad. Right. But a long time. But a with a couple time. of couple of times I ran off to do something new and they always took me back. So I was very lucky. Yeah, because you said that you you didn't have any training at all in announcing, mm. but you did sort of go to drama school though, didn't you? Did you? Oh, um... uh, yeah. I went to... Um, I grew up wanting to be an actress mm. and um, and I also, see, the thing is I'd been to a convent boarding school and I, God. <laughs> I was as green as grass at 18. I knew nothing about the world or life. It was a very... And I did the round of drama school auditions at 18 and they basically all said, I think you need to go out and have a life first. <laughs> <laughs> it's true because I knew nothing about anything, and they were right looking back. But but mm. but I desperately wanted to work in theatre. I'd, I'd got stage struck when I was about sixteen, and desperately wanted to do it and run away to join the circus. And so, I rethought the whole thing and thought, well, why don't you apply for stage management and technical theatre? Because it's the world that's attracting you. You don't necessarily have to be the person on the stage. And that's what I did. I went and trained as a stage manager at Central School which was great, which I absolutely loved. So uh, so that was good fun as well. And my flatmate was Fern Britton, so she ah, trained as well. <laughs> excellent. So she was on stage, was she, and you? No, were... she was st- training to be a stage manager. She was oh, on the was course. She? Yeah, yeah. We were, right. There were only eight girls on my course, and uh-huh. she was one of them and I was the other. Right. So she trained as a stage management person as well. So um, so ah. I know Fern from way back when. So how did she end up in front of the camera then? Oh, it's really interesting. She, she you know, way back then when nobody had mobile phones and email didn't exist, if you wanted to keep in touch, you wrote people letters. And she wrote me... (laughs) I love that. I know. She wrote me a letter one day, just a catch-up letter of her news. Mm. And she said, the funniest things happened to me. She said, I've been on tour with the Cambridge Theatre Company. That was her first job after drama school. And uh, we went to Plymouth. And while I was there, they were holding auditions for announcers. And they asked me if I fancied having a go. So I did it for a laugh and they've given me the job. So literally, I know. I mean, you know, these these strange things that can happen, you know, random chance things. Yeah. You know, if she'd said, no, I'm not going to have a go at that, then she wouldn't necessarily be the fern that we all, you know, got to know and love really over the years on telly. And then she said, and the point of the letter was, she said, you were the one they all said had had the unusual voice. You should have a go. And she put the idea in my head. And I thought... Oh, perhaps I could have a go at earning a living using my voice, you know. She was in vision. I've got to say, I was lousy in vision. I was rubbish. But, but she sometimes was, people just mm. like, you know, are better in, in front of the camera and some people prefer yeah. to just hide away. And I know I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people too. As Fern yeah. is a natural in front of yeah. the camera. She really was. So, oh, she, yeah. Uh, yeah, she still is, isn't she? Yeah. So I thought, oh, let's see if I can have a go. And I made a homemade tape mm. uh, on a cassette recorder and I wrote lots of letters and... Uh, and sent it everywhere and um, blagged my way in, basically, that way. But thanks to Fern, really. So. Yeah. Oh, wow. And there was yeah. another um, sort of strong, well-known woman that um, helped you to oh, Esther. study your career. <laughs> I loved Esther Answers. She was brilliant. Around, around the time I was sending all my blaggy letters and everyone, all the small ITV companies wrote back and said, we don't have any money to train anyone brand new who doesn't know what they're doing off the street. Mm. Try the big companies. And all the big companies wrote back and said, terribly sorry, you need to go and get some training from a small company. So this Catch-22 was going on. And at that time, it was 1981 maybe, Esther Ranson announced a nationwide competition trawl to find Mm. a whole new team of presenters. 
And anyone from anywhere in the whole world could apply. It didn't matter whether you'd been in a TV studio or not, whether you had Mm. any showbiz background or not, or journalists or not. You could literally just send her a letter and apply. So I thought... All my confidence ever has come from naivety, totally and utterly. Well, why not? I thought, all right, I'll apply. So I wrote a letter and I I sent off a nice photo. And um, much to my surprise, they they wrote back and said, uh, would you like to come for a chat with Esther? (gasps) (laughs) Now, I I subsequently learned they had thousands of applicants. So how I got through, I've no idea. I must have written something very cheeky. Mm. Anyway, I remember this. What they did was across five days, Monday to Friday, she interviewed 20 people a day for five days. Mm. I was something like number 98 or 99 on the right. list. And I turned up on a Friday late afternoon, terrified. You know, not only am I, I know nothing, I'm out of my depth and I'm going to meet a national icon and I don't know what I'm going to say. And uh, I go into there and into her office and she's sitting behind the desk looking exhausted from having talked to people all week. Mm. And she said to me, um, so you're Trish? And I'm going, yes. And she said, uh, you, you wrote quite a, an eye-catching letter here. We quite enjoyed reading your letter. And I'm like, thank you. Like that. And my voice is coming out like a mouse, like a squeaky, squeaky mouse, because I'm terrified. And she looked at me and she said, do you fancy a drink? I'm like, yes, please, thinking cup of tea time. She reached under her desk and pulled out this bottle of wine and two glasses and went, white, do all right? I went, yes, thank you. And honestly, I relaxed instantly. I thought, you're wonderful. You are wonderful. (laughs) It's like 4.30 in the (laughs) afternoon and she's got the wine out. And the minute I'm sitting there with a glass and I'm totally relaxed. So uh, so I just had a general chat with her. I said, yes, I work in the theatre and I did this and I did that. And she, it was just her gut, whether she liked you or not, I think. And then the next thing was um, a mock programme day at Shepherd's Bush Theatre, where That's Life, I think, used to be filmed. Mm. I don't think they were in a studio at Television Centre. Anyway, I've got to say, at this point, I crashed and burned because the enormity of how far I'd got Mm. suddenly hit me. If I look back, I wasn't very good. Basically, you were stuck behind the panel. You had to read bits of auto cue. You had to interact with Esther. You had Mm. to be act like you were on the show. And that's when I suddenly thought, you've blagged your way this far. (laughs) What are you doing here, Trish? (laughs) But Esther was lovely. Esther was lovely. And she said to me, they gave us all a party afterwards. And she said to me, listen, Trish, don't give up. She said, you've got a really unusual voice. You can do something with that. Mm. So she just enforced everything that Fern had written in her letter. Yeah. And so she said, use my name. She said, you can use my name. And so I wrote back to everyone and said, Esther says I'm great. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you dropping her name back then was quite a big deal. Well, yeah. God, everybody knew Esther Ransom. My goodness. But, you know, I know she has a formidable reputation, but I thought she was fantastically brilliant and supportive and, you know, know, really encouraging of new people and all the rest of it. She she does come across that way. Yeah, she does Mm. come across as somebody that would, um, you know, if she likes you and she believes in you, she'd Mm. be right behind you every step of the way. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Here's to Esther. She's she's, uh, she's a national treasure. Oh, she really is. Yeah. So buoyed with my experience of that, I wrote back to London Weekend and said, Esther says, I'm great. And would you, can I have a, can I come and see you? And they said, yes, come and see us then. (laughs) That's how I blagged my way in. Oh, good for you. (laughs) And they went, oh, you live down the road. I said, yes, I live down by the old Vic Theatre. And they went, oh, take you five minutes to walk to work then. I said, yes. Ah. And that's what made them interested. (laughs) 
So it was all about location. Well, we had announcers back then. We had Peter Lewis, who was our star announcer, who lived way out of town in some fancy country pile. Mm-hmm. And quite often he'd ring up from, you know, whatever motorway and say, oh, I don't think I'm going to make it in time for on air. Now, the number of times the London Weekend would then call me and say, Peter's been held up. Can you get in to open the station on a mm. Friday? Wow. Uh, you know, so that's kind of like what I did, really. <laughs> I became a very useful standby person for them. So, uh, Well, do you know what? Whatever gets you in. Yeah. Whatever gets that foot in the door. That's what I say to people whenever. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you must get letters from emails these days. Letters. <laughs> I was going to say, I haven't had a letter for a long no, time. No, exactly. from the bank. You must get <laughs> I don't e- like yeah. those letters. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, nor the ones in green ink, you know, the no. strange <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I think I was very lucky looking back. The whole thing of, of female narrators and promo voices and all of that and, and even continuity announcers when I started was not a big thing and I was very, very lucky to, to get myself in, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, so... Uh. Because you're kind of the longest surviving yeah. um, female announcer yeah. and, and possibly for good reason because you didn't take any shit. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> I think, I think you have to remember I was a convent girl. <laughs> no, I tell you what, I know where you're going with this. We'll get yeah. to that. Um, I, I, <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Russell T. Davies would love this story. I, I know, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he just? Um, <laughs> let's forget the worthy stuff. Let's just do... <laughs> We don't want any career bollocks. No, Let's just okay. get on to sex. Okay, I'll cut, I'll cut the career bollocks. You complete that bit. Um, okay, when I started in telly in the 80s, early 80s, I mean, it was a very un-PC time back then. Mm. And, uh, you know, which is interesting why Me Too has become a thing. And I thought, well, how did we deal with that back then? I think mm. the only way to deal with it for me was to, to give as good as I got. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to get into trouble telling this story. But... <laughs> Sometimes late at night, some of the chaps I work with would get a bit bored, especially on the engineering side. And they would kind of, you know, buzz through to VT and they'd say, VT, um, anyone got Debbie Does Dallas kicking around? <laughs> <laughs> and they go, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll put it on VT21, okay? And then they'd fire up a monitor and they'd sit around in the control rooms and have a look at this hardcore porn going on in a, in a monitor up in the corner. Uh, and I would be on duty and I'd be sitting around that control room with these people in between the pro and I'd be thinking, this is, I'm feeling really awkward about this. I'm not, mm-hmm. in, I have no moral view about what people do in their spare time in their private lives. I have no moral view, but I don't mm-hmm. want to come to work and, and be confronted with. <laughs> with Debbie and <laughs> With Debbie Dallas. doing Dallas, exactly. <laughs> or whatever. And um, I thought, how am I going to deal with this? Because I'm essentially on a freelance contract here mm. and I could be the person who is difficult to deal with about it. And I don't want to be that person. I also don't want to upset all my lovely colleagues who hasn't occurred to them that I'm I'm feeling slightly uncomfortable about Mm. this. I know what I'll do. I'll do the same. So I found a poster, a full frontal poster. I think I got a copy of Playgirl or something. Mm. Uh, Lovely chap, all the dangly bits on show, and stuck him on my continuity studio wall. (laughs) And he was a big poster, Ellie. We're not talking a tiny little thing. You couldn't miss it if you opened the door. Wait, sorry, are we talking about the poster? Or... Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and uh, I can't remember. I really can't remember. Um, so I stuck him on my wall. And back then also there was a lot of union uh, guidelines about who could touch what. So this was my territory, the studio. I know. <laughs> 
think I'll rephrase that. <laughs> oh, no, please don't. <laughs> okay, so this studio was my territory. Right. And therefore, you know, if I wanted to put a picture on the wall, that was my prerogative. Mm-hmm. And um, I just stuck him up on the wall. And my boss, my lovely boss of the time, press manager, came down and... Uh, he, he was gay and so he'd heard rumours I'd had this fabulous chap on the wall he came down to have a look and he looked at it and he went very good he said, but, he, but he didn't tell me to take it down right. and um, and then eventually one of the chaps from the, the engineering area shuffled in opened the door late one night and said oh, Trish uh, some of the lads are a bit um, bit upset about the poster you've put up they said, said these chaps and I said yes and they said uh, we, we'd like you to take it down. And I said, tell you what, let's do a deal. You all stop watching hardcore porn when any of us women are on duty and I'll take it down. And they went, oh, all right then. And that was Good how I dealt you. with it. And Good I just thought you. you had to do it that way. And yeah. nobody was upset and we all got on. And Do you know what I mean? It's just yeah. stuff like that, that. So it was a different culture back then. It really was it a was. different culture. And, 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 I, I'm not, I mean, and I'm not slagging it off and I'm not deriding it. I'm just saying times have changed. They have they changed. Have. You know, and so. I think that you have obviously dealt mm. with it really, really, really well. Um in a way that a lot of women possibly couldn't have done because yeah. they would have felt quite threatened by it. I mean, I'm I'm baffled by the idea of anybody wanting to watch porn while they're at work anyway. Because <laughs> this is late at night. You well, know, these shifts yeah, are long. Is it? <laughs> even so, you know, I mean, what are you going to do with the resulting... I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Wouldn't happen I, now. It really wouldn't happen now. No. I know that. I mean, it, I suppose maybe they couldn't... This is the sort of thing they couldn't access at home in the same way that they could get it at work if that's the only place it could be accessed because there was no internet, you know, they probably didn't have VCRs or anything. Do you know, I hadn't even thought of it like that. I hadn't mm. even thought it through in that way. I just thought, oh, well, this is what chaps do when they get bored late yeah. at night. You know, if you're yeah. sitting around a transmission area at midnight and, you know, everyone's bored and some of them are on shift till maybe two, three, four, five in the morning, maybe you're right. Yeah, I hadn't thought yeah. of as to why. But the thing is, the, the culture was different than any. Anyway, and I'm not saying it was right or wrong, but you know, you'd you'd switch on the television and you'd have um, people like Paul Daniels and Debbie McGee, and, and obviously they were a married couple, but she was just so glamorous and wore these skimpy outfits, and yeah. every every program that was on, there was always a woman that was only there for decoration. Yeah. Um, in fact, there was probably only really Esther Ranson and, and people like that that were on the television um, that were considered intelligent and, yeah. and and women that had any kind of a brain. I remember the Furore when we had our first female newsreaders, and it was Angela yeah. Rippon and. And Anna Ford. And, and you know, I remember my dad back then sort of saying, you know, women telling you the news, you know, women and continuity announcers at one point only ever did early shifts because the early shifts were full of cooking programmes and, mm. you know, nice, gentle country, walk in the countryside programmes and this yeah. and that. And it took a while for everything to change. It mm. really did. But I'm also very aware that I'm a bit of a, a you know, I can be a big, loud, stroppy personality. So, <laughs> and, if, and if I hadn't been me, if I'd been someone enormously threatened or, or uncomfortable in that situation. Well, I did feel uncomfortable, but, you know, mm. I dealt with it my way and I'm, I'm very aware that some people would have dealt with it, would not have dealt with it. And, and, no. and that's why the culture had to change. You know, it had to it change is. to protect everybody. I mean, can I just make, I'll make the point that this didn't happen all the time, but just, no. you know, it very, very occasionally. Otherwise it's, yeah. it's going to go into the annals of television history. <laughs> 
every single night. <laughs> every night, that's what was going. But there, there is a very famous occasion back back in the day. I think this was even in the early nineties, where porn was cut to air accidentally in the middle of transmission. So you know, <laughs> and that made the During press. During play school, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that did make the press, and oh, you know, so obviously imagine. someone somewhere was mucking around with it again. And, yeah. Uh, and I think heads rolled on that occasion, if I remember. They, they you know, but we're did. talking, we'd moved on there another 10 years. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I just think that that's probably what kept you there. You know, you were able to take any kind of rubbish, any, any, any kind of rubbish that you didn't like and, and butt it back. You know, you basically gave them both barrels when uh, when it came at you. I hope I'm not considered or was considered a, a, a stroppy person. I think I was just considered someone who could stand up for herself. You know, if you want to take me on, yeah. you'll take me on. And I think that's, I think uh, so. Which is remarkable for a convent boarding school girl, really. Isn't it? Because, yeah. So what, what was that like? What was it like? And yeah. What do you mean? In I what mean, way? What, what was it, I, I've never been to a convent boarding school, so I wouldn't have a clue well, it was, what it was like. They sound I suppose, horrendous. I suppose it was a bit St Trinian's and it was a bit, you know, it was a bit... Uh, Boarding schools, I think, get a bad rap now. Um, for mm. me, it makes you very independent. That's probably what it is, which is not necessarily a good or a bad thing. So you may come out terribly naive about the world and life, you know, um, you know, going to drama school after that, where people mm. sort of hug, jumped on each other and hugged and kissed each other and ha- having to go into classes with boys. You know, I don't <gasps> have any brothers or anything. Right. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't meet my first boyfriend until I was about 19. So, you mm. know, I was completely, all this was complete mind-blowing stuff for me. Yeah. But on the other hand, it made me very independent and able to look after myself. And um, my mum was very upset because uh, parents had shoved me in this place for eight years from 10 to 18. And uh, and expected. Oh, I think it sounds marvellous. I wish I could shove my kids into boarding school. <laughs> and at eighteen, they kind of expected me to go home and and get a local job and find a local boy yeah. and live near them. And I went, well, you haven't bred me for that. I was like off to London as soon as I could, yeah. you know, to, to to start my life, as it were. So it's a shame for your parents that you didn't go back. But uh, I, I know they were ended up mom, very proud of me. my mum. Well, <laughs> oh. <laughs> My dad was very hard to please. <laughs> you know, first of all, he didn't want me to work in the theatre. He was right. horrified. He was absolutely horrified. Uh, I haven't spent all this money on your education for you to run off and shift scenery, was his, his view. Oh, OK. Yeah. And uh, so I did run away at one point. <laughs> really? Well, I left school, having done the rounds of drama schools and uh, trying to get in on the acting courses and getting nowhere. And he said, well... You haven't applied for university and you should have done. And I had my A-level results and I could have done. What are you going to do? And I thought, I'm, st- I'm going to do this if it kills me. And mm. so I got myself into Central, went off, you know, t- took myself off to London and did an mm. interview and got myself in. And then announced to mum and dad, right, I'm, I've got a place at Central. I'm starting in September and I'm off to do it. <laughs> so they bred me to, to be, you know, to not be a home person. <laughs> it sounds like I ran, it, yeah. I ran off to London and never left, as I consider London my, my home city, really. So mm. you know. The point of the story, I remember, you see, I'm getting dementia at this age. <laughs> uh, the point of the story was that I still couldn't please my dad. So after a few years working in theatre and having a gloriously lovely time working, working in fabulous places like the National and the Royal Court and the Young Vic and mm. on fantastic productions, you know, as a humble ASM or DSM or SM, but just seeing the brightest and the best people putting on plays um, mm. was great. But my dad it was always shifting the scenery as far as he was concerned. So I thought, OK, this also was partly was going to drive my television jump, you know, so mm. after Fern's letter and everything. 
And I thought, well, at least if I worked in television, my dad actually might think I might be amounting to something. So I got myself into television. And I, at some point, I started doing freelance continuity on their local station, which was TVS. Right. And so they would hear me on the telly. And occasionally they would see me telling them that uh, Coast to Coast was on or, you know, Sons and Daughters, this and that and the other. And when I went home, expect, you know, when I went to visit the next time, I expected my dad to be a bit impressed. And he went, well, you're not Angela Rippon, are you? (laughs) (laughs) So I could never impress my dad. So I thought, what do I have to do? I've got myself into telly. You can see me now. Well, you're not Angela Rippon. (laughs) Because Manchester, Ellie, I've got to tell you, he was Manchester, my dad. Oh, well, that explains it all. <laughs> so, yeah, so there we go. So they weren't that, they weren't terribly, he wasn't t- overly proud at all, I'm afraid. Oh, bless him. <laughs> my mum was quite pleased. <laughs> but, uh... Oh, wow. <laughs> so, That's no, so but typical. The of one parents, thing I hoped they would have been proud. There's, the only one thing would have been when I worked on the Olympics, and I thought yeah. I so wish they were still alive. I so Aww. wish because that that I hope my dad would have said, but he probably would have found another thing. Well, it's not like you're broadcasting to the moon, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. But actually, that was in in many ways that was Great Britain's finest hour, and you were the voice <gasps> so of it. So wonderful. I cannot yeah. tell you that. I know, I know people probably think, oh, well, she worked for LWT. No, I'm sorry, everybody. I've got to tell you that the biggest, best, most gobsmacking moments for me were working on the Olympics. It was mm-hmm. just fantastic. And the atmosphere in London, particularly as, you know, the whole country was so cynical about the whole thing. Yeah. And I thought, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. But then, you see, once again, that was all accident and stumble and, and blag. Really? Yeah. It was all a blag to get there. But, you know, somewhere along the line, we all end up with voiceover agents. And I, got, yep. I had this voiceover agent and she she uh, rang me up one day and she said, we've had an availability check from you, for you, mm. from a company called uh, David Atkins Enterprises. And they are doing uh, a big event in the desert in Doha, in Qatar. And I said, I know who they are. Mm. And she said, this is the thing, knowing stuff. She said, well, who are they? I said, they're the people who put on Sydney 2000. How random is that, that I would know that? Mm. And the reason I knew that is because I've always been an Olympic ceremonies junkie. And I had blagged my way to Sydney in 2000. I'd gone on a mad last minute jaunt to Sydney and I'd been there for the whole Olympics thing, just as a punter. And I knew watching these two ceremonies that they did for Sydney 2000, wow. These are brilliant because mm. what, what David Atkins did was they, they took away the pomp and ceremony and made it far more accessible and far right. more modern. They're brilliant ceremonies. They're great fun shows. And I said, I know who they are. They did Sydney 2000. She said, oh, well, they're doing one in the desert. They're doing the Asian Games. And I said, don't care what it is, just get me on that job. I want wow. to work with those people. And then we were told that there was this kind of like... They, they, they had 20 on a shortlist. Then we were told there were 10 on a shortlist. Then they mm. told my agent I was down to five. Then they told my agent I was down to two. And oh. I had to wait and see. And then my agent rang up and said, oh, they've just been in touch. You didn't get the job. And I was so heartbroken. I fancied this desert experience. I fancied this adventure <laughs> and working with these amazing Australians. And I, you know, so I was really, really disappointed. And then about a couple of weeks later, a lovely voiceover friend called Graham Bannerman got in touch mm. and he said, I've just seen this job advertised that you were chatting about, where you were telling me you really wanted. He said, I've just seen it advertised again on some 
jobs board on one of the, you know, online for- yeah. voiceover forum things. He read it out to me. And I said, that's my job. What's going on? <laughs> and he Good went, he said, it sounds like they haven't, uh, haven't got anyone. I said, but they're doing the shows in about two, three weeks. They've left this really late. So I rang up my agent and, I, and she said, oh, I don't know. She wasn't that big on me chasing it. And mm. I said, can I, can I have the email of the, the person you've been dealing with? Can I email them, please? She went, yeah, you can be my guest if you want. So she gave me the email. It was the casting director. And I emailed him and I said, blah, 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 blah. It looks to me, I'm Trish. I was down to last two. Mm. And it looks rather like you haven't appointed anyone. You have to hire me because I know who you all are. I was in Sydney in 2000. I've seen your shows. I know your work. I would die to work with you. Oh. Tell me tell me what the problem is and I'll see if I can fix it. And the next thing you know, my phone is going. And it's this lovely Aussie casting guy. And he goes, g'day, Trish. Uh, the problem is you sound too sexy. <laughs> He said, but tell you what, we're terribly impressed you got in touch. If you want to work with us, we want to work with you. Can you do as a demo where you harden up your voice and make it a bit lighter? Ah. So I did. I said, yes, yes, I can. (laughs) Anything. Anything, anything. (laughs) And I've got a mate at the telly to sound engineer, mate to put crowd effects on and trumpet fanfare noises. And I'm going, ladies and gentlemen. And I just lighten up my voice a bit. And I send it off. And about 24 hours later, he rang back. He said, "He said, uh, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Congratulations, you're coming to work with us. Brilliant. And I went and got that job back, you know. Fantastic. I went and got it back. And so the point is that one of the people I ended up working with, the executive producer of, of the, these epic ceremonies, I mean, they were mm. huge, a lot of money that put into the, the, the Asian game ceremonies. Mm. Uh, the scale of them was phenomenal. And the exec producer was a wonderful English woman called Catherine Ugwu. And Mm. she was from an event company in London. And she was constantly looking very, very stressed outside our voice box. And I would constantly make her cups of tea. (laughs) Oh, well, that's what got me the (laughs) In between the bits. You know, because you did in between the bits where I had to do anything. And and I got to know her a bit. And six years later, she's appointed head of all the ceremonies for London 2012. And I wow. didn't know that. And, um, and she and, remembered those And she remembered me. And I, I got a phone call from her office and saying, would you be, it's Catherine Ogu. She wants to know if you remember her. So of course I do. And, wow. and she, said, <laughs> she said, would you be interested in working on London 2012? Oh, yes. Oh, but amazing. I didn't do the opening. I just want to, you know, I didn't do the opening. I was in line for the opening. Right. But Danny Boyle. Danny had basically decided, and what Danny wanted, Danny got, which is fair enough. I mean, mm. the scale of the opening was phenomenal. Yeah. Danny wanted a much younger voice, and he wanted a voice that wasn't particularly Middle England or RP, and, mm. and therefore I didn't tick Danny's box, as it were. And that's fair, fair enough. enough. He's the boss. Yeah. He's the director. Yeah. But after the opening, I got the closing and, and the Paralympics opening and closing. So I oh, did the, the next three. And yeah. had a had a riotous time, you know. I'd, I'd have to pinch myself, Ellie. You mm. know, we're, we're rehearsing the closing ceremony in six inches of mud in a car park in Dagenham, where they've mapped out in the car park <laughs> the scale of the Olympic Stadium. And me and my fellow announcer were sitting in a, you know, tenko, where you've got those prisoner of war camp boxes, these, yeah. these things that look down on compounds, you know, those tall wooden things. So they yes. built it. They, that's what our box was like because it was also the director's <laughs> overview of what was going on. So we had the director and the designer and the this and the that all looking out the windows at the car park and me and my fellow announcer sitting in a makeshift table behind them. 
Yeah. Uh, having to do our bits from up there. And in between, you'd go a bit mad up there. So whenever I knew a big chunk was coming up I wasn't in, I would climb down the stepladders to get down to... <laughs> and I remember climbing down to go out for a cigarette break. I was like, oh, I was a cigarette smoker then. Mm. And standing, hanging over a barrier, aware that someone had come and stood next to me on my right and was just hanging over the barrier watching. And I was watching mm. what was going on. And he went, it's good, isn't it? And I looked up and it was Brian May. And I went, yeah, it's really good. So do you see what I mean? I mean, it was just the most amazing time. I got to meet the most amazing people. Oh, and, how wonderful. You know, and I remember going to the stadium and Ian McKellen would hang around outside our box because we had the kettle. <laughs> we announcers. Had, and he'd say, can I come in? And I'd say, yes, sir, Ian. What do you want? Oh, I love a rich tea, you know. <laughs> I mean, so all sorts of random people would come and hang around with us. That, you know, wow. And your jaw would be dropping all the time. And probably know? people who hitherto were not remotely interested in sport but oh, because yeah. it was the Olympics. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Our box was next to the Queen's box. Um, really? And whenever she was due to come along, because she came and she did. No, Prince Harry did the closing. Uh, mm. And the Queen opened the Paralympics opening and, and we were kind of locked in our room and sniffer dogs had to come and sniff us and sniff our room. And we were we were told to stay in with the door shut until she'd gone past with her entourage. And then they banged on the door and said, you can open your door now. And you knew the Queen was just through the wall, you know. <laughs> That's <laughs> incredible. Right next door. Yeah. <laughs> so wow. weird. So I got to say, after I, did, after I worked on the Olympics, for which I will be eternally grateful, um, mm. um, I kind of went... Oh, well, I've done it now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, and then I thought, You've peaked. Actually, you still need to earn a living, Trish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. That's more matter of money. I know, but it's not going to get any bigger than this, I thought. But no. I have done a few more of those since I've been lucky. I did a, another Asian Games and I did another. I went to Turkmenistan, which is the oh, second wow. most enclosed country in the world after North Korea. Really? That, yeah, very, very scary. No one gets into Turkmenistan. <laughs> and what's it like once once you get in? It's we were kept in the Olympic Village. We were given digs in the Olympic Village, and we were told to be very careful. I shared my digs. I had my room. She had her room. We had a communal room with a one of the producers from the ceremonies, hmm. and she she was already there before I arrived. And she first thing she said to me was, Trish. Um, just to, just to point out, we are being listened to. So if you anything you want to talk about, we'll do it outside. You know, wow. <laughs> and we were told not to talk about anything in lifts because lifts were bugged. Everything was bugged everywhere. Um, there was no social media. They're not allowed it. So how does that work? If you if you turn up there with with your smartphone, um, do, can you just not get onto Facebook or you or... had to register your email address and your uh -huh. I, your phone's device with the, yeah. with the governmental authorities as you arrived. Now I arrived later than everyone else because there'd been a bit of a hoo ha. Originally, the president had wanted local announcers, and the English yeah. bit wasn't working well. And so some lovely people who'd remembered me from other ones went. Get Trish. So I got this mad call, <laughs> a mad scramble to get visas done and sorted, and I was off. And so I was late, and and therefore I didn't register my devices. Uh, that kind of slipped through the net. Right. But, and it was I, my device was picked up sitting in the in the booth at the stadium one day by the guy doing a sweep for checking people's devices and what they were doing on them. And mm. he and he pointed his laser gun through the window and, and it kind of went off like a Christmas tree. Mm. And he's looking absolutely furious. And my fellow announcer, who was local, Turkmenistani, said, have you registered your device with the government? And I went, no, didn't know I had to. 
So that was a bit of an awkward moment where I thought I was going to end up carted off to prison. But my fellow announcer, who who was a local celeb, he was like the newsreader that everybody knew, managed to sweet talk my way out of that. So no social media at all. They were allowed, um, funnily enough, Instagram because the, right. the president thought it was only photos. Okay. And he didn't realise people actually could write anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no Facebook, no, um, no LinkedIn, Twitter. no Twitter, none of that. Wow. No, not allowed that. Completely banned. Um, emails could be mon- all email traffic could be monitored in and out of the country. So when people hear. During this lockdown, I'm going to be controversial, start saying our civil liberties are being eroded. They have no idea. No. They have no idea. You know, they go to a country like Turkmenistan Mm. where you don't have any civil liberties at all, you know, where everything is monitored. They do have to watch everything they say or do because you Mm. could disappear and no one would ever know what happened to you. So, you know, don't tell me when, when you are asked to wear a mask that it's eroding your civil liberties. For goodness sake, you know, I get so angry about it. I cannot tell you. <laughs> you know, don't be a selfish, I'm not going to swear, but don't be a selfish, well, you know. you can. Yeah. No. <laughs> You'll just have a, one of those little E's next to your yes. uh, episode. It'll be a category A word, no. though. So. <laughs> <laughs> Phil would know about those from his days as oh, yeah. an announcer. It'll be a category A word. Oh, the afraid. categories of words? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. No, I didn't know okay, about that. So the, I can, the MF uh, and the C word. MF uh-huh. and the C word are category A. Right. Category B downwards is the F word downwards. You know, so, <laughs> so that would have been a category A. <laughs> to the athletes of the world, to the people of London and the United Kingdom, to the volunteers and the staff of the London 2012 Organising Committee, thank you for an unforgettable summer. You've been listening to Tales from the Tannoy with Eleanor Hamilton and Trish Bertram with music from Beats Bakery. This podcast was produced by Carl Svensson from Tadar Media. If you're enjoying this series of Tales from the Tannoy, then please subscribe and leave a review from wherever you get your podcasts.